Hoopaholics. Coach Spins here from the Box and One. Thank you all so much for all of your, your consistent support throughout this entire draft cycle. We're all running on fumes, man. All of us here who were covering the draft last night, who've been putting in the hours, and all of you guys out there who are following along and, and clicking on every article and video that you can. But as we are sitting here a day after the NBA draft and this 2022 cycle is officially starting to wrap up, thought it would be a great idea to uh, get some of the, the great minds on the draft together right here, some guys that I respect in the space. And, and uh, to be honest with you, this feels a little bit like we're in the back room of an Italian restaurant here, right? It's, it's the meeting of the families that are all getting together and, and giving some, some different impact here. I am in no way qualified to lead that conversation. So I am actually going to hand the torch over to, to Mike to, uh, to lead the way here. Mike, the, the floor is yours to take this discussion here on the 2022 NBA draft in literally any direction that you would like. Well, yeah, I just wanted to get my board out there because people, like a few people have asked me. So yeah, I wanted to do that. But honestly, I have not followed the draft super close this year because I've started working for a high school site this year. So I've really focused on high school more. So uh, yeah, uh, the, that's why definitely it's good to have you guys here to uh, provide your input. I'm sure you guys, you know, uh, if people would ask me like who has the best like predictive uh, like board, I would probably suggest Gene. And then if uh, people ask me like who uh, really has, uh, you know, really watched a ton of film and really has, uh, you know, the descriptive part of scouting down, uh, Adam is definitely uh, one of the guys that will be at the very top of my list as well. So it's great to have you guys. And uh, yeah, so I just wanted to do my board and just ask you guys a few questions, what you guys think about some of the, like, the general stuff about the draft. But uh, yeah, otherwise, other than that, you guys, we are, you're welcome to talk about whatever you want. No, I don't want to like, make it seem like this is, I want this to be like a very specific conversation or anything like that. Uh, just a few things that I wanted to bring up. But other than that, yeah. So yeah, I think we could get pretty much started. Uh, what's it called? Uh, I, I posted my board. Uh, we could probably put it like in the description for this or something like that, or like the post. Sure. Yes, yeah, so other people could see the whole thing. But yeah, uh, I, for you guys, I put it in the um, message thing we had. Uh, I could put it, do you guys want me to put it in the Zoom message or anything like that? No, I'm good. I have it up. Yeah, I see okay. it. Okay, cool. So yeah, so yeah, just uh, I guess we'll go like from the bottom to the top. And if you guys have any players you want to discuss or like think that I'm super high or super low like uh we don't want to go through every player because that'll take us like 20 hour podcast <laughs> if we do that so uh yeah just uh any general players that any of you guys really want to discuss uh let's let's start with Dean since he hasn't had a chance to speak or if anything else you want well, yeah to I'm thinking why don't we just start at the top of the draft since those are going to be like the most interesting players who are going to change the franchises the most and I mean we, we all agree that or I think most of us agree. I mean, there's some dissent. Uh, I think Adam might, you know, rate Jaden Ivey a little bit higher than, than one of these guys. But there, there was the big three of Paolo, Chet, and Jabari. And Paolo was the surprise pick at number one. And uh, I really like that pick. Uh, you know, I think he's a great pairing with, with Franz Wagner. Because, you know, Franz showed pretty good creation as a rookie. Um, but he still seems more of like a number two guy than a true number one. And like a number two guy who does the role player things really well. And, you know, I think Paolo can be that number one creator. He can pretty much score from anywhere. He can pass. Uh, his shoot, shooting seems decent enough with some room to improve. And, yeah, but those you have basically like two 6'10 wings who can, you know, handle, pass, shoot, 
people say Paolo can't defend. I think his defense isn't that bad, and he has a chance of being pretty good on that end. So I don't know, I'm, I'm really excited for Orlando. I think that's a great, you know, one-two punch. And plus they have, you know, Suggs, uh, Carter. Hopefully Isaac gets healthy. So, yeah, I like Paolo a lot. I think that was a great pick. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, too. I had Paolo number one on my board throughout the, the final few months of this cycle here because at the end of the day, I think what you draft for when you're sitting in one of these prime positions is something you can really attach the, the cart uh, to on the offensive end. And, and Paolo has shown that he has very few holes on that end of the floor. I do buy into the shooting. I think 34% is not a low number for, for a guy who – you know, he's taken most of his shots as, as pull-up jumpers and is getting defended by the other team's best player for a, a large period of the game. Um, great around the elbows, but an underrated passer. I'm glad you, you mentioned that aspect of his game, Dean, because when you're going to be the, the number one option on some team's offense and, and the engine on an NBA team, you need to be able to be a proactive passer, but also somebody that understands how to read defenses. I think Paolo at his age is really good at already doing both. That's part of the reason I was was super, super high on him. And, and I'm glad that Orlando kind of got to that same conclusion because, you know, we can talk about Jabari and Chet here, but I think that great offense beats great defense. And if we're going to carry that over from a theoretic area to, you know, the NBA playoffs where we see that in action year after year, then Paolo should get a little bit of a slight tiebreaker above the other two guys. Yeah. I, th- I thought it was a good pick. I'm, I'm fine with, uh, I have the top three of Jabari, Chet, and Paul on the tier, and I'm fine with the pick. Uh, I think he might be even sway way better fit than Jabari, but even though I still prefer Jabari overall, my like the, my criticism of like Paul would be like, I guess it depends like how high you are in the, on the passing. And like, uh, like I think Dean really uh, is a big fan of his passing and, uh, you know, the defense also like, I think I'm pretty much in agreement with you guys though. Like, I don't think it's like horrible, but at the same time, yeah. Like I, I do wonder about like that, that stuff, like, uh, like how, how good is the passing, how, uh, how valuable is the defense? Cause I, I do think there's going to be some like in the somewhat inefficient, uh, uh, type of creation stuff with him and some, uh, questionable shots at times and stuff. So that's kind of why I put Jabari and Chet over him uh, with them. I'm a little bit more comfortable with, uh, some of the kind of uh, what do they call like uh, other stuff like the, the defense obviously with Chet and even Jabari like the defense and Jabari being more of like a, a possible really really uh, high end efficient uh, shooter and scorer uh, so that's why I slightly have, but it's close and I definitely see the argument for Paul I'm not like I'm just explaining why I had him third but I'm not necessarily like feel super strongly that you know uh, you know those guys should be above him or anything like that. Yeah, I think I think all your concerns make sense, but for for me, I actually think his passing is super rare. Uh, you know, you pretty much never see bigs who pass this well. Even like like last year, Evan Mobley was one of the best passing bigs we've seen in a while. I think Paolo's probably even a better passer than Mobley. He's like a better passer than Al Horford. And like even if you look at his assist rate compared to Nikola Jokic at the same age, it's different leagues. You know, ACC versus Adriatic, but he still had a higher uh, assist. Uh, Rate, rate of getting assists than Nikola Jokic so you know you just don't see this passing much in a big man so that's the thing that really solidifies him as number one is that I do think he has a rare level of passing you know and it's not of course you know you can't take it for granted he's going to develop as well as Jokic but I think there's tons of passing upside there and, and, and excuse me for one second but just growth throughout the season too I think that he got so much better in that final month or 
you know, six week stretch stretch of the year as a playmaker. And what I always look for, because I'm, I'm a big film guy, I, I trust kind of what the, the tape reveals. Uh, growth in that area is always really welcomed for, you know, moving forward to the NBA. You can see the cerebral part of his brain start to click on as he's been in the same situation time and time again. I think that's incredibly, incredibly valuable. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you. He did look better for sure at the end of the season. I'm not sure how I, much I believe that it will translate, like necessarily that, uh, you know, uh, I think it was just more of him adjusting to the college level and kind of showing what he already had with uh, just, you know, feeling more comfortable. But uh, maybe you're right. Maybe it will, it's a sign of, you know, uh, rapid development. But uh, yeah, I definitely, like Dean said, that, that was basically my point. Is like, yeah, if you're like super high, you think he's like an all-time great or possibly all-time great passing big, I would definitely be uh, more in on him, number one. But from what I saw, I think he's a very good passer, but I don't think, uh, I didn't see a lot of like really special like, vision and uh playmaking but the numbers you're right the numbers are definitely uh uh in his favor in that sense but yeah well what do you guys think uh adam what do you think of uh chet and jabari are you one of the people that's lower on jabari are you uh yeah yeah i am uh i had jabari fourth and again we can transition to this whenever however the, the conversation takes us i jade and ivy third and then jabari fourth both in kind of a, a half tier below guys like paolo and chet my my love for Chet comes from his competitiveness and believing that the offensive skills are going to be unlocked more at the NBA level than anything he was able to show in Gonzaga's system and scheme, which is a little bit confining for big men sometimes, especially those who have the unique combinations of fluidity and ball skills that Chet has. Uh, Jabari, for me, like I, I don't love guys who struggle to put pressure on the rim. I know that Jabari's stats in terms of his efficiency finishing at the rim indicate that he was so much better there when Walker Kessler, another first round big from Auburn, was off the floor. Uh, but if you're going to buy into that, then you need to really have either a stretch five next to him or believe that he can be able to play the five at some point in his NBA career. And I didn't necessarily buy into the latter part of that, that he's going to become a five, nor do I think that you take a guy in the first one or two picks who you therefore have to get this exact type of front court partner to go alongside of them. I think that that's, that just changes roster construction in a way where I'd feel more, uh, more secure going with somebody that I think is a little bit more versatile in that regard. So it's not that Jabari is not a versatile defender, but the actualized version of him to become a top option on the offensive end and, and not just a play finisher, a shooter, a guy who makes tough shots in the mid range is really getting that spacing for him on the offensive end. Yeah. Gene, any thoughts or? Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I agree with all the concerns regarding Jabari. I mean, I, I had Jabari as number two. Uh, I, I guess the, the two point percentage is very frightening. He's not really explosive. He can't get, get by anybody. He doesn't have that good finishing at the rim. And he seems kind of a little bit floaty at times, but, uh, you know, the, the, the comparison that, that I heard that, uh, uh, you know, Evan actually made it is that what if Rudy Gay was just two inches taller and just absolutely wet from three? It's like, all right, it's not like, maybe not like an MVP candidate, but that's like a really useful player. And I think it's hard to evaluate Jabari just because his flaws is he, he has that like shades of like Rudy Gay or Andrew Wiggins and he just kind of floats through the game. 
doesn't really create as much as you want. Although, you know, those guys are even more athletic and better at finishing than him. So I'm sure some people might even disagree with those comps, but man, in terms of his shooting and defensive versatility, I mean, I think you could play him, get away with paying him at the small ball five, but I think you could play him at the four. I think you could play him at the three. Like he's really hard to beat off the dribble, especially for a six ten guy. You know, he can handle, he can pass, and he's just a, a great shooter. So uh, th- there's a lot about him boring, and it feels like he's missing that, like, star upside to be, like, um, like a big scorer, like Durant or, or whatever, or even uh, maybe not even good enough to be, like, a Carmelo Anthony. But his role-playing skill set is just so good that I-, I-, I have to have him number two. Yeah, I definitely think he has a really high floor. But I'd also say that uh, I'm a little bit uh, less concerned about uh, getting, like, pain touches and that stuff in today's league because, like, We've seen like the best player in the league right now, or in my opinion, at least Steph Curry is not. I mean, obviously he's like all-time great shooter, but you could argue Jabari's all-time great shooter for his size. Or you look at somebody like Paul George post his injury, or Michael Porter Jr. Those guys don't necessarily get a lot of definitely not self-created uh, paint touches. A lot of it is uh, shot making from the perimeter and outside shooting, and uh, or even uh, I was just thinking of uh, another guy. But yeah, there's a few guys like that. That's uh, oh yeah, Gallinari. If you're looking for like a little bit more, you know, lower. Uh, kind of end comp who, uh, a guy who was super valuable uh, uh, in his prime. So if if Jabari, uh, you know, he projects to be that level of shot maker at 6'10", and uh, having that defensive, uh, you know, upside as well, um, I think he could definitely uh, live up to some of those comps potentially. And, uh, you know, obviously he's also uh, about, I think, over a year younger than the Holmgren and, uh, you know, considerable, almost a year younger than uh, Bankero. So um, yeah, uh, you know, the, that stuff is important as well uh, as far as his growth. I think uh, people kind of look too much. I mentioned this on Twitter already, but uh, people kind of see what he was at Auburn and uh, what he did uh, and kind of the shortcomings he had, but don't think about enough uh, like uh, the, the, uh, uh, the positives that he has and uh, how those, uh, how unpredictable uh, growth could be in the NBA. Like uh, that reminds me of like a Scotty Barnes last year where people had a lot of doubts, like he can't shoot, uh, he can't do this, but, uh, you know, they didn't give a lot of curtains just to the um, skills he did have and uh, how uh, guys sometimes have uh, kind of unusual uh, developmental arcs. So, Mike, you mentioned, you know, guys like Gallinari or Michael Porter Jr. as having supreme value as role players in today's NBA, and I do not disagree one bit, which is why Jabari still a top four guy on my board. Um, but I also think that those guys are only really valuable if they surround a primary offensive option who collapses defenses and gets them the ball, right? And, and that's where like, I would put a little bit more value on a guy like Paolo. And, and personally, just because I, I really buy into Jaden Ivey's elite athleticism, being able to translate, uh, I put a little bit more value on Ivy. My thought process there in trying to differentiate between the two is what's going to be harder to find a guy who stands there and knocks down shots or somebody who's really, really good at getting to the rim to create those shots for somebody else. And both are valuable. Um, and, and I understand the argument that at his size with his positional versatility on the defensive end and how he guards combined with the upside Jabari makes sense in a lot of that regard for, for other people. Uh, but just in terms of how I like to, to build rosters and think about it from the, the ground up, I would prefer to have that play starter and a guy like Ivy than a play finisher like Jabari. So yeah, I, I don't really believe in Ivy as a primary uh, option at the NBA level. I don't think that's 
going to really work uh, well, especially if you're like talking about building a winning team. Uh, but and I think Jabari is more than like you know just a standstill shooter. I definitely think you could uh, uh, be like a top option uh, without necessarily and uh, you know uh, uh, draw like a double team and uh, help defenders without necessarily uh, attacking the paint at a high volume. Again, going back to Steph, uh, does that obviously from the guard position, but nevertheless, even like an older KD and somebody like that, or again, Paul George is a example, especially after his injury in recent years, you know, these guys are such incredible shot makers. They uh, draw double teams and they draw uh, what they call like strong side overloads and stuff like that, even despite not necessarily having a super high uh, rate of uh, you know, self-created rim attacks. Uh, so uh, yeah. So where does the where does the double come from for a guy like Jabari? Like where on the floor is he stationed? And and from from my measure, like a, a lot of double teams come from guys who are going to at some point put pressure on the rim, right? Like if you're double teaming a guy who's just a, a stationary jump shooter, you're setting yourself up for for failure on the defensive end because you're traveling that much farther to the perimeter when you have to double team guys. The, the traps typically either come out of ball screens when there are already two defenders there or around the basket when your help defender is only a step or two away. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, do, if you've seen like Durant or Paul George, a lot of the doubles is will be uh, they'll run them off screens like towards the basket or they'll uh, do like isolation type stuff in the elbow area or in the short corner area and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, they'll uh, often they'll try to get them on a mismatch that'll uh, help draw double teams and not necessarily like hard doubles, but also like uh, Again, uh, like strong side overloads, teams uh, bring over help. I'm not a fan of double teaming or like, you know, uh, trying to get it out of uh, the hands of only one individual player and just focusing on stopping one player. Personally, if I was building a defense, but this is what teams do in the NBA consistently. If somebody's a really great shot maker, they're going to try to, uh, you know, bring a lot of help or like uh, Steph, I think does a lot uh, more uh, pick and roll stuff, but he does a lot of off ball stuff as well. Golden State, I think, leads the NBA in the, or like has the least uh, pick and roll possessions of any team in the NBA, or at least that was the way it's been uh, in the past few years. I don't know exactly this season, but uh, yeah, uh, you, there's a lot of uh, ways to, uh, you know, draw doubles and stuff like that for guys that are more perimeter oriented uh, in today's league. All right, Adam, I, I have a question for you. So what sure. would you do if you're in Houston shoes and you already have Jalen Green yeah. and you're picking at number three? Do you say, all right, Jalen Green is the guy who can draw a double team and he can't find uh, Jabari? Or are you taking Ivy and playing Ivy and Green together? No, I, I would have taken Jabari there. And, and that's where, again, saying that they're in the same tier, a guy like Jabari and an Ivy. And if I'm starting from scratch, I go with the guy who's putting more pressure on the rim. Houston's not starting from scratch right now because they already have a Jalen Green on their roster, that guy who is athletic enough to collapse defenses to put pressure on the rim. That's going to allow Jabari – to, to thrive. I think that it's the perfect fit for Jabari to be in Houston because now he has a little bit more of a primary guy who can create those shots for him. And, and likewise, it's the perfect fit for the, the, the roster because now Jalen Green gets a little bit more spacing to operate in. Who do you think yeah, right, yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, when Houston is in uh, like their prime, if they keep this roster approximately, do you think Jalen Green is going to be the guy that provides the most value on the team? Define value. Uh, Just overall know, value to winning. Like if they take away any one player, how how many like how many losses they lose, or how many uh, if you want to go playoff losses they lose, or whatever, playoff wins they lose. I mean, I, I think that 
the core that's built around Jalen Green and Jabari Smith can eventually become championship contender. And I think that if the game's on the line of those moments, the ball is in Jalen Green's hands. Um, yeah. all, of the, all of these, like we're, we're talking years and years down the road where they have to add layers to their game that they absolutely do not have right now. So it's really hard to forecast like, hey, is Jalen Green going to learn to play at a third speed instead of just super, super fast and super deliberate? Um, you know, how is how is his progression going to be as a passer? Because that's really important at those moments, too. I buy into a lot of the tools, but if we're talking about how it is going to be, that's, that's really different than how we might think it's going to be. I'm a, I'm a huge Jalen Green fan, huge fan. Yeah, no, I'm just no, obviously, but that's the draft is projection, right? Obviously, we're gonna right. we could all be wrong here, and uh, it's really difficult. Uh, but uh, I'm just asking, like, who do you think? I'm just wondering. I mean, I'm not saying there's a correct answer here. I'm just wondering, like, do you think Jalen Green, if like, if uh, say this is approximately what who they have right now in five years, they all like reach their prime, and uh, if they took away Jalen Green uh, one year, and then the next season they took away Jabari Smith, uh, which team do you think would do better? You think the the one without uh, Jabari would do better than the one without Green, I'm presuming? Yeah, I, I have Jalen Green ahead of him in the pecking order. Like, I think that's the primary guy that I would want to take away if I'm an opposing coach, um, just because I, I think you take away the head of the snake as opposed to just the finisher. And I, I don't see Jabari as that much of a creator for everybody else. And I'd live with mid-range isolation buckets. That's, again, when you talk about your style of not loving to trap guys in the half court who are superstars. I'm okay doing, you know, the same thing with high volume mid range scores, like let them eat a little bit. Same thing with Philly and Joel Embiid when, when they go against teams in the playoffs, I'm okay. Him playing one-on-one finishing a game with 35 because I don't think the Sixers come out in the the winning column in that every every single time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the playoffs, you're right. They're going to do a lot of, they're going to try to get a lot of switches and try to, uh, if somebody Jabari is like one of your top options scoring wise, He'll probably uh, take a good amount of three pointers and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, that's anyway. Uh, yeah, we can move on. Though. Do, do you guys or do you guys want to? Do you have anything else you want to talk about? You want to talk about Chet? We, it feels we kind of skipped Chet. Yeah, yeah. We may as we may as well talk about Chet. Uh, for me, uh, you know, I think Chet's like I, I had Chet number three on my board. I think you know if if you're not getting Paolo or Jabari, Chet's definitely you know kind of obviously the best player on the board. Um, but I, I don't like OKC taking Chet over Jabari, especially when they, they already do have the two guards to create. Now, granted, Chet's not a really creator, too. So both Chet and Jabari are good role players who fit with them. But, man, getting a 6'10 guy who can make threes like that and switch and defend on different people, that's a perfect uh, fit next to having two guys uh, who can create like Shea and Giddy. And, I mean – Chet's smart. Uh, he knows what he's doing on D. His, his skills on offense are good. I think he's going to be – I don't think he can really create space off the dribble that well, but, you know, he's still going to be an efficient role player offensively. Uh, I just think that, you know, his frame, it might not matter much or it might matter a significant amount because we just haven't seen anybody that skinny succeed. And he's, he's already 20 years old, so it's not like, oh, he's only 18 he can fill out. He, you know, being that skinny at 20 is scary, so – I just feel like he's just, his weirdness just kind of makes him too risky with, with two guys that I look at as, you know, legitimate number one overalls in Paolo and Jabari. So I think it's kind of like, eh, it's not like taking Bagley over Doncic level mistake, but it's kind of like a, a bit of a mistake in my opinion. Yeah. Mike, you're high on Chet. 
I like I do like Chet. Uh, I think Chet was really close for me for number one with Jabari. Was uh, I think uh, Bankero was in the same tier as well. But ultimately, when I really thought about it, I did feel more comfortable with him as the third guy in that tier. And but the other two was really close. But I want doing this board is more a little bit towards the median outcome. So that's why I went uh, towards Jabari because this is more like I'm just trying to like predict how this draft will look in like 10 years more so. But if I was the GM of a team and I would do like, you know, I would have obviously uh, hopefully a good relationship with my owner and, uh, you know, make them understand that I'm trying to build a contending team. So I'm going for more kind of a high risk, but maybe high reward outcomes. I'd probably take Chet, uh, number one, personally, if I was the GM. Uh, so, yeah, I do think he has a lot of upside. I am kind of worried uh, of that kind of general archetype. I guess you could say mobile is kind of comparable in that. And obviously that's been a big W, but like guys like Bull and, you know, obviously Pokoshevsky, uh kind of in the past, I've had a tendency to overrate those uh, type of players. And I've seen them really succeed and have these incredible performances and being really productive at lower levels, but kind of struggle to translate that to the NBA. So that's kind of my like, concern with the, uh, just, uh, you know, that uh, kind of thin uh, uh, perimeter big man who, uh, you know, derives a lot of value from uh, uh, shot blocking value, uh, volume uh, and stuff like that. Uh, how does that really translate to the NBA? Because, uh, you know, there's been some examples of guys that didn't really work out, but uh, definitely a lot of upside. I agree with you guys there. He really knows how to play and uh, definitely a lot more like mentally uh, uh, kind of disciplined and focused than somebody like Bull or even uh, Pokoshevsky. Sure. I think, yeah, I think that's fair. Mike, Mike I, I'm curious for you. And if it's all right with you, I'm going to read out your tier two on Dude. the, on, on your big board here, just so that everybody listening along here is that I'm fascinated, not just by the players that are here, but the order that you kind of went in. So uh, at, you know, number four overall for you, Jeremy Sohan, fifth Benedict Matherin, six Jalen Duran. Seven, Keegan Murray. Eight, Shaden Sharp. Nine, A.J. Griffin. Ten, Jaden Ivey. And 11, Tari Easton. Uh, Mike Dean, where do you want to start with that one? Because I know a lot of different directions we could go from both uh, individual prospect standpoint and overall like draft philosophy themes and, and things that you tend to prefer or look for and how you constructed that tier. Um, I think for me, it's just it was really close between a lot of those guys. It's like uh, I'm fine with having Eason at number four. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up the fourth best prospect in his draft. And uh, yeah, but uh, the reason I won with the uh, Soshan uh, number, uh, like at the top of that tier is because I just uh, really trust the Spurs. And I think that's a great fit. And uh, yeah, I've uh, really grown on Soshan over uh, the uh, course of this season, just uh, being a really young player, uh, already really productive, really smart on the defensive end. And uh you know, uh, his shooting uh, kind of indicators haven't been super promising, but the mechanics are there, the confidence in, is there. And, you know, the Spurs have had a history of really uh, figuring that stuff out with guys. So, uh, yeah, I just uh, really like that fit. And, uh, yeah, so I kind of went uh, not totally off fit, but uh, I think fit definitely played a big part. Like I said, these guys were so close together for me that uh, kind of separating them out again. Mather and I think I had fifth is because uh, – uh, I'm a big fan of what the Pacers have been building in uh, just the recent last year. I think Halliburton and Matherin are a really good fit. Uh, Isaiah Jackson is a good fit for him as well on the defensive end. So, uh, yeah, and uh, so forth. Like, another, like somebody like Jaden Ivey being lower on him. Uh, I just haven't been really impressed with the way the Pistons have utilized their perimeter players a lot of the times. And I do, I know they have Kate Cunningham now and big Cade fan. But, uh, yeah, I'm still a little bit skeptical if he'll be able to uh, get a lot of uh, – 
efficient looks and uh, you know ideal kind of opportunities to uh, uh, you know actualize uh, his game with the Pistons. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I I agree with Mike that it's kind of like a flat tier. You know, I think after top three, the draft really falls off a cliff. And um, you know, that number four pick's really hard. I wouldn't have taken Keegan Murray, uh, but I mean, he could be fine there. And I just think nobody's really that big of a win. So I was also really high on Sochan because I just like his type of player. I think he's, you know, smart. He has a lot of defensive versatility and he's young enough such that, you know, maybe he does learn how to shoot in time and his offense isn't that bad. And also maybe this is kind of like a, a bad heuristic, but I just, it just feels like kind of these players that are kind of errands, kind of like borderline dirty players. They, it seems like they become good a lot of the time, you know, like, you know, Marcus Smart, Patrick Beverly, Draymond Green, the guys who are always like getting under everybody's skin. It seems like they're good a lot. And so definitely is got under UNC skin in the tournament and actually he was the one who go to Brady Manic into getting ejected and then they made the, the big run when they were down like 25 points so I don't know maybe maybe that's a bad theory but I just feel like those guys just normally work out in the in the NBA so I'm, I'm with Mike I'm into Sohan yeah I, I like Sohan uh, a decent amount I, I also try not to and it's hard right because we're talking about future projection here and a lot of that you have to look at raw tools and make a educated guess on what you think the upside will turn into eventually. Um, I try not to fall in love with the idea of the player more than the player itself. And like there were two guys in this tier here who, who really, I love a lot of the things that they do and bring to the table and the ideal version of them that they could turn into is probably sitting at like five or six on the board for me, but both, uh, Jeremy Sohan and AJ Griffin, like there were enough question marks with one end of the floor that I didn't feel incredibly secure about putting them any higher on my board than I had, which were both in like the 14, 15 range, I think for Sohan and Griffin. Would you guys be all right speaking to, you know, I guess, Dean, where do you have either of those two guys? And then, um, you know, why you feel so comfortable putting them in that next tier of prospect? kind of side by side next to some more dependable guys. Yeah. Well, for, for me, Sohan, I had him number five and I agree with your point about like, yeah, he's, he's very weak on offense, but I think he's not quite as doomed as it seems because he's not a great shooter, but he still takes threes. So just that alone, well, he's 18 years old. He takes threes. Maybe he learns to shoot. And, you know, he did have more assistant turnovers, which indicates some ability. He can handle the ball, make the right decision. Uh, especially for, you know, a 6'9 prospect. Uh, A.J. Griffin, on the other hand, I was a lot lower on him because I think his defense is a lot more, like, just really bad. Or You know, he just gets beat one-on-one, yeah. gets caught napping and back cut, like, all the time. And he also has the injury history to boot. Uh, and it seemed like the medical flags may have had him slip a lot. So I had, I had A.J. Griffin around, like, number 14, which is closer to where you had him because – I think his defense is a little bit more of a fatal flaw than uh, Sohan's offense and then the injury thing to boot. Yeah, that's the, I think the AJ, I, I mean, both of the things are kind of fair. Like the Sochan thing, I'll just say again, because uh, the guys were so close and I just really love that Spurs fit with another team. I probably wouldn't have them as well as 14, but I probably have them much closer to like number 10 or something like that. Uh, Sochan with another team, but uh, AJ, yeah. If I was just going off college, like I said, I didn't watch a ton. Well, I mean, I watched some, but, and I watched a decent amount of Duke, but, and I agree. He definitely did not look 
great throughout the season. I mean, he shot the ball really well, had some really impressive moments as a shot maker. But other than that, uh, there was definitely a lot of question marks with him. But uh, I just loved him so much pre-college. And uh, I thought he had so much upside uh, and uh, the stuff he did before college in AAU with the US U16 team and uh, stuff like that. And uh, being how young he is, uh, he's coming up those injuries uh, again. Uh, that's, you could know, you could put that as a question mark as well. But uh, I think that kind of, uh, uh, you know, gives him kind of an excuse to why he's still adjusting and figuring out his game. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of swinging for the upside there. And I think the Hawks also are a pretty good fit for a guy like him. We saw him, uh, you know, uh, utilize DeAndre Hunter pretty well, you know, get the most out of uh, Herder. I mean, I guess you could argue Cam Reddish hasn't worked out so well for them. But, uh, yeah, I, I feel pretty good with him next to Trey Young and, you know, Collins uh, and, uh, you know, guys like that. So, uh, yeah, I just uh, – I'm betting on the upside. But I definitely see, like, the downside argument. I definitely think there's a, you know, a considerable downside there with Griffin. I agree but, on that. Well, I think with both of those guys, they're just – there comes a point when the upside is so, so, so valuable that you have to take that swing. Like, for me, like, that was the later part of the lottery or you know, in that, like, 13 to 15, 16 range for both of those two guys. And that's class by class. You have to look at what other prospects are available. Um, it, I guess philosophically, it's a little bit of a difference, right? Like, are you trying to swing for the fences and you need to find that absolute star? Or are you just swinging to make sure you don't strike out and you want to hit a double and you want to find somebody that's going to be in your rotation somewhere? I think once I get outside of that top tier of, in this class, I guess the, the top four for me or the top three for, for both of you gentlemen, uh, I would rather have somebody that I feel comfortable being in my rotation than going all the way down and saying like, you know, AJ Griffin, if he hits and he returns to that 16 year old level that he was playing at, he's the top five guy in this draft class, no doubt. But I don't want to be the guy that's wrong on that. And again, that's a different type of strategy and a different type of style, but I'm pretty risk averse in those ways, right? Like I don't, I don't, you know, go on roller coasters or things like that. I'm just a, a weird guy in that regard. Uh, but I think that's part of the conversation here, right? What is your propensity for taking on risk? Yeah, I, 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 I was just about to bring that up that I think this is kind of a difference in philosophy maybe between us that, uh, you know, I'm definitely more upside oriented. I think one day we should have a podcast because I feel like I'm always confident I can convince everybody who's like rational that upside is the way to go. Like, uh, but I, it's a long conversation. I don't want to get into it now. But uh, yeah, one day maybe I'll try to convince you that, that that's the right uh, approach. But uh, yeah, that's I think that you're 100% correct. I think that difference kind of makes up uh, for a lot of maybe our difference in, with those two guys in particular. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually probably in the middle between you guys for, for, for the upside versus safety. Cause I think, I think the problem is, is if a guy has um, a lot of upside, but there's just so many things that could go wrong, well then he doesn't, he doesn't have that much upside anyway. Right. Because it's like, if it's a, well, he has this amazing upside, but it's going to hit like 2% of the time. It's like, how much does that really help? And um, I wouldn't say that completely applies to AJ Griffin, but for me, it's why I tend to be on your level with them is because, you have to worry he never learns to defend. You have to worry that he gets injured. You have to, and you also have to worry that, well, he did have a small sample of shooting and sometimes guys shoot really well in college, but not um, in the NBA. Like my example, the guy who shot, looked like a great shooter, like AJ Griffin did with Xavier Henry as a freshman. And then he went to the NBA and he couldn't shoot a lick. So to me, there's just like a few different things that could just undermine AJ Griffin's career. And if everything goes right, yeah, you get a really nice role player, but 
I don't know. It's just, it just seems like a dicey proposition. So I'm on your side that, you know, I, 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 I'm gravitating a little bit more closely towards median for that reason. So I, I like being a little more cautious with guys like him. Well, I think what people don't realize a lot of the times is that uh, uh, upside and the downside are very correlated. Like there's not a, that many prospects that have this high upside and the low downside. Usually the guys with a high upside also have a high downside too. You know what I mean? It doesn't really like, like people think that like every other prospect is like this high risk, high reward, but that's not how actually really works most of the time, at least in my opinion. But uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree with you. And now, now, now that we're kind of on the topic of upside, I, I'm kind of curious what you guys think of, of uh, Shaden Sharp, because to, to me, this was a guy who, you know, yeah, he, he has pretty good upside if he hits, but, you know, does anybody know if this guy can even play? It seems kind of risky. So what do you guys think? Adam, you have a take or you want me to? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with that one. So I, I buy into Shaden Sharp. Um, you know, the way I construct my boards is off of film, uh, a little bit of Intel, but mostly off of a film that I'm able to go off of. And anytime it's not a guy who's playing college basketball, the translation has to be, um, you know, I'm using a little bit more of my analytical tools of how is this competition going to translate to the NBA? How is what he's doing on this type of floor? going to, to work against pro level competition. It's a lot harder to do for a guy like, like Shaden Sharp with the film that was available at the end of the day. I think the raw tools were not just impressive, but functional in a lot of the film that I saw that leads me to believe that at the very least he's going to be an athletic contributor on an NBA floor in ways that nobody else really has. Um, I like his, his shot-making ability. He's got a long way to go in terms of feel just on based on what I looked like. But I gave him a top-five grade, that right outside of those, those kind of top four guys, he's the next best bet for upside swing. Um, you know, I, I just – I'm not going to say that it's a gut feeling or anything like that because I think that's always a cop-out of an answer. But – based on the, the trajectory that I think he would have been on had he had a normal year, we would have been talking about him as a top three or four guy that just the fact that he was a little bit more out of sight, out of mind that there's the risk associated with him is more on not seeing him for the last year, not necessarily on any indicators about his style of play. And that I feel more comfortable taking a swing on a guy like him than on a guy like AJ Griffin, who the film kind of backs up negatively um to, to draw him down my board yeah no i mean i don't agree with the griffin part but other than that i'm pretty much with you on sharp like i'm, I'm thinking about maybe a little bit lower because i worry about his defense somewhat and then like some of his shooting questions are uh, are a little bit concerning because uh, i mean he shot the ball really well from a uh, three-point in au but it was a fairly small sample size and the free throw percentage wasn't great his mechanics are solid but uh, it's it's not like uh, they're like super amazing and like he didn't have like a super high volume of really impressive like versatile shooting um uh i mean he had some good moments like off the triple and stuff but still like there's a little bit of question there that uh uh about the shooting and just like the field but in general i agree with you i do think what do you think of sharp and like the blazers fit that's another thing that i was kind of unsure exactly how that's gonna work um yeah for me personally i i don't know uh he's probably not going to contribute anytime soon. I, I didn't like what the Blazers are doing in general. Uh, I just feel like, you know, Dame is, is past his prime. It's going to be so hard for them to win a playoff series. I would have just rather him like, 
just just trade Dame to the Knicks and get like all of their draft picks for the rest of time, <laughs> and get all the Usman Dane draft picks and just rebuild. And uh, but instead they traded a pick for uh, that I didn't like the sharp pick that much. I think he, he's very risky and he's a lot of times he's not going to be great right away. And I didn't like the Jeremy Grant trade that much because he's, you know, 28. He only has one year left on his deal. Yeah, he helps them get back to the play-in or maybe the playoffs, but is he going to help you win a series? I don't know. And the pick that they used to trade for Jeremy Grant ended up getting traded for Jalen Duran, who I think is a better pick than Shaden Sharp. Um, Adam, uh, do, you, uh, do you have thoughts, first of all, on the Blazers and Sharp? And then also on Duran, I wonder what you think about Duran. Yeah, I'll start with Duran. Actually, I'm, I'm a big fan of Duran. Obviously, I had Sharp five on my board, so at this point, you know, I've gone through all the top five guys for me. Uh, Duran was tenth, so uh, in that same kind of tier as a guy like Shaden Sharp. But uh, I just think you swing on the athletic wing as opposed to the athletic big at a certain point in the draft. A really good night for Detroit from me in terms of getting. Uh, Durin at, at the value that they got him. I think that it's a little bit more of an indictment on the trade that they were able to pull off as opposed to Portland. If they had gone to, you know, the Knicks at 13 or, or 12, whenever that Durin selection was made and said, here's a future pick from the Milwaukee Bucks. Can you give us Durin? They probably say no. Um, so there are uh, the other pieces involved in that, I think complicate matters for, you know, who, who wins on the, the return from each, each deal or each facet of the deal. Uh, I, I don't mind what Portland's doing. Uh, I, I certainly know that Shaden Sharp's not, a, not going to contribute in a year or two, but I think getting a guy like Grant who helps Dane feel happy that they're, they're trying to make that effort while also uh, you know, keeping or taking the best player available and keeping him on their roster allows them to keep that window open for maybe six months longer to figure out exactly what they need to do, what direction the franchise is going to go in. Yeah. Um, Dean, what would you think of uh, Keegan? Do you have, did you have any guys that uh, in my top 10 that uh, weren't like at all in your top 10 or any guys that you had in your top 10 that were like not a, that I didn't have very close to top 10? I was, I was, I had Dyson Daniels at tier higher. You have Dyson Daniels at the top of tier three at, n- at number 12. I actually had Dyson Daniels at four, which I don't know if it's a bad take because, you know, it seems like he, he's got a, a lot of low upside in, in a lot of ways. Uh, but I don't know. He just seems like a solid dude. And, you know, just, just going with, with kind of Adam's theory that, you know, it, it, I think when, when the draft is bad and there's not many guys who are that exciting, I want to get the guy who's most likely to just be a solid guy. And it seems like that's Dyson Daniels, um, you know, but of course, a lot of it depends on his shooting and, you know, his G League shooting, not that good. But then, you know, in this pro day, apparently he was just making everything. So how good of a shooter is he? I don't know, but it's going to really determine his future. But I'm kind of curious, why, why were you lower on Dyson Daniels? Uh, for me, oh, yeah, like the shooting. You know what I was thinking about it just now is I remember that they were reporting that he grew like an inch or something. I probably should have taken that a little bit more into account. I might have moved them up maybe a little bit. But uh, yeah, I, I also don't really love the Pelicans fit. They already have Herb Jones, which kind of like a broad, like similar to Daniels. And obviously, I think older and better right now than Daniels. So I wonder how, you know, his, his early career is going to go over there. So did he sorry? Well, well, yeah. I mean, I think you can't get enough enough good uh, defensive role players. And yeah, he he did measure six, seven and a half of the combine, which makes him like a legitimate small forward as opposed to um, 
a shooting guard. And I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with having two, you know, two defensive stoppers, especially when you got, you know, CJ, you got Ingram, it's going to create a high value of offense. And hopefully, I don't know what's going to happen, but hopefully Zion comes back. I, I have my doubts, but, you know, maybe he comes back and then you have those three guys and you just need a couple defensive minded wings to surround them with. Yeah, I, I like Dyson. I think that he's a, a high feel type of player. And if we're talking about, you know, like Dean said, at some point it becomes really impactful just to get a guy that you believe is going to be solid and on, you know, in your rotation. I think high feel, length driven prospects kind of check a lot of those boxes in the modern NBA, which is why I can certainly understand why a team would take Dyson Daniels, you know, as Dean had him like fourth on his board. Like if Sacramento had made the decision to go with Dyson Daniels at four instead of Keegan Murray. Uh, and I had Ivy a little bit higher, but I would have understood it. I think that the process there is a solid one. Uh, I think Daniels is right around, I think he's 12th for me as well, Mike. So we're a little bit more in alignment in how he stands next to the rest of the class. But again, in terms of what wins in today's NBA, and you know, if we're just going to make one small tweak to his three-point shooting and he ends up being a 36, 37% three-point shooter, then that's that would be really, really good value to find in the top half of the lottery. Yeah. And even if he's not like a great shooter, if he's like a really like elite defender, he did like a Gary Payton, uh, the second for the Warriors this year, for example, not a, exactly like an amazing shooter, but just enough to, you know, make shots. But he's like an elite, elite defender, and that could be really valuable. And, uh, you know, if you have a, already a good team in place, like to have a role player like that, that I definitely uh, agree. Like, I don't, I'm not like anti-Daniels, but definitely like the scoring kind of worries me, like the lack of offense and stuff. And I'm not quite sure, like the defense is that elite. Like, I wonder if uh, if that's going to be really huge value at the NBA level, or he's just going to be more like a, you know, above average type of defender, stuff like that. So yeah, we'll see. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, what'd you guys think of the trades? Uh, uh, I guess we'll go to Dean. Uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, what'd you think of the uh, next trade? And what was that? Oh yeah, the Duran trade. I think you already mentioned that uh, you, you're big. Yeah, yeah, the Duran trade. I, I love the Duran trade for for Detroit. You know, they're, they're not going to be competitive next year. They trade Jeremy Grant for a pick, and then they trade that pick for uh, Duran with some salary and some extra second rounders coming in in between. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, I think that's great for them. You know, they they have a, another young guy to get excited about. And then the other trade that Oklahoma City made, which I didn't like at all, was uh, the, the Usman Jane trio deal where they traded three first rounders to um, the Knicks. Uh, two of them were, were first rounders they got uh, for trading the, Sengu- the Albert Sangoon pick to Houston last year. And then they threw in Denver's uh, 2023 first rounder, which is lottery protected. It's probably going to be in the 20s. Um, but yeah, so they basically paid, it, paid an extra late first to. Uh, instead of to pick Jing this year, instead of Shingun last year. And uh, for, for me, I like Shingun. I thought he was good. Uh, I think he showed decent promises. A rookie he still has some questions moving forward. But Jing, uh, I do not like Usman Jing as a prospect just because he wasn't good for New Zealand. And New Zealand was the worst team in Australia. And I mean, he's he just plays very soft. He doesn't play with much force. He doesn't rebound. He doesn't get physical. He dies on every screen. Um, he can handle the ball, but he can't get by anybody off the dribble. Um, he, he can shoot a little bit, but I, I just don't think there, there's, there's enough there to, you know, take him nearly that high little and give up three first round picks for him. So I thought, I thought that was a really bad mistake by uh, Oklahoma city. Did you guys uh, see it a different way? 
Well, I'm wait, pretty much 100% agreeing with you, but I think maybe Adam has, I don't know. But. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a certain point in the first round, especially in this draft class, that a swing on Jang becomes worthwhile. Yeah, again, that, there's one one thing that I sound like a broken record saying here. It's that with a lot of these high-risk guys, like if they're going to deliver potential really high-caliber returns, then I wouldn't let them get outside of the first round. I think that there's just some point that you you take the swing on them. I don't love trading up to get a guy like Jang, but I look at the bigger picture here for Oklahoma City, and I, be, I see two things. One, they've got an embarrassing, embarrassment of riches in terms of future first-round picks, that at some point they have to start consolidating them for a guy that they really want, and the, the general value doesn't necessarily matter as much, right? Like just ensure that if this is your guy, you have the pieces to, to move up and get them. Just ensure that you go get them and that no one else is going to leapfrog you to take that. So I don't mind OKC slightly overpaying to move up into a spot where they feel like they're getting their guy. I agree with you. I don't love the thought that Jang is going to be that guy. But again, bigger picture with what OKC is building, I think they want supreme length and feel at every single position. They feel comfortable that they can develop some of the physical stuff and guys will will mature, their bodies will fill out. And I think they also feel comfortable that guys will be able to shoot it eventually. But if you look at just a backcourt grouping of Giddy, Jang, and SGA, like that's a lot of handlers right there. It's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Uh, questionable fit, for sure. But I think that Sam Presti definitely has a type. And at this point, it's just acquiring as many swings at it as he can to see which one or two or three of these guys are really going to pan out. Yeah, they definitely want guys with size that can handle the ball. But I think like Jenga, I think it's kind of like a fake upside type of guy. I think his ceiling is like a maybe like a taller Terrence, Terrence Ross type. And that's like, it's not that bad. Even like at 11th, I think that'll be decent. But that's like a ceiling. And I don't really think that's going to happen. I think yeah, I've, like- I've, I've said Nick Batum for kind of a ceiling there, like more defensive toolsy against point guards, connector piece. But like there, there are questions about the shooting. I agree with Dean. He, he's not very good at drawing contact and then seems to shy away from a lot of that stuff plays more like a, a one than anything else on the basketball floor. So he's not even like quick or particularly or like super explosive or anything like that, at least from what I've seen. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, let's see. Well, in the, in my third tier, is there any guys that stand out to you guys or especially like early on, like uh, maybe Kendall Brown, maybe somebody you guys know. Uh, oh yeah, Ken, Ken, Kendall Brown slid a lot last night to 48, and I, I had Kendall Brown like right around where you did. You have him 17. I had him around, you know, that range like late teens or 20. But I think he probably just slid because of whatever injuries he had in high school. Plus, you know, maybe maybe he had some off court flags. I don't know. I think it has to be like a red flag thing because he has such good athleticism. He has the dimensions you want for a wing and. Uh, yeah, he plays really passive and he goes long stretches where he goes invisible, but you just don't get that, that tools in that age and just having a basic ability to play basketball and not be terrible and slide that far. So I think there is probably something deeper wrong about him for non-basketball reasons on top of, on top of the NBA, just not liking his game because he just goes invisible for such long stretches. Yeah, I agree. Like if there's like Intel, I don't mind being wrong though. Like it's just like I don't I don't have access to that. So it's like if I'm wrong because of that, it is what it is. I'd rather be wrong because of that than be wrong because you know I was trying to guess Intel that I don't know about. You know, that's kind of like weird, like pretending to like 
guess something that I don't even know if it's true or not. So yeah, and like I said, I really love what the Pacers are building uh, recently with these young players coming in. Uh, so I think that's another guy that fits well um, oh, there, maybe not as a starter per se, but like as one of the top guys off the bench in the future, potentially, uh, you know, with Halliburton throwing uh, oops to him and, uh, you know, uh, Isaiah Jackson and him like uh, flying up and down the court, uh, switching and stuff like that. Uh, I think that could that could be a pretty solid player in the you know for somebody in the teens. But yeah, I don't know. But maybe somebody else, Adam. You want to talk about anybody in my third tier? Or... Yeah, I, I'm very curious to hear. Uh, you have Walker Kessler at 13 and Mark Williams at 15. So if you wouldn't mind going into the thought process there of why you prefer Kessler over a guy like Williams. Yeah, uh, I'm. I think uh, I have some. Um, kind of hope for uh, Kessler as a perimeter shooter who shot like off movement threes in uh, AU a good decent amount uh, and uh, was known a lot more as like a perimeter type of big so uh, if that comes together combined with the you know the 7-1 size and you know his excellent uh, shot blocking and stuff like that uh, I think that could be a potentially really really valuable player whereas Williams I think as uh, me and Dean had this conversation and I could understand going for Williams I mean I have him two spots apart in the same tier it's not like a huge but uh, yeah I'm just kind of uh, willing to uh, I mean not willing but like more like again more going towards the upside uh, outcome of uh, possibly what Kessler could be worse with Williams he's probably a little bit more of a sure thing at the center position I almost sure this will be like a solid productive uh, five at the NBA level but I don't really see like a huge amount of upside there to be honest Dean any thoughts on Kessler or, or I don't know where you end up yeah I, I like Kessler too and to me I, I had Mark Kessler and uh, Kessler and Williams like kind of like right neck and neck for, for the whole board for, for the whole time. And I was kind of back and forth on who, who I rated better, but I, I, I ended up with Williams one slot higher, but I see the argument for Kessler just because, you know, his defense just seems a lot better to me. You know, Mark, uh, he blocks a lot of shots and he has good length, but he also kind of has slow reaction times and he's kind of slow laterally too. You know, you know I think um, offensively, Williams is more explosive. He's the better finisher. He's more efficient. Uh, but, you know, I, I see the argument for Kessler being better that if you're looking for a rim protecting big, what do you want to be more mobile uh, with better in, in the right place in the right time, making quicker reactions on defense or just, you know, having a slightly higher percentage and getting a few more dunks on offense. And so for that, I think it's a close decision. I can easily see Kessler being better. Yeah, I'll even give the argument for Williams. He's a better like post defender. Like Kessler really gets uh, has trouble in like certain one on one matchups. He'll get bullied around by like bigger centers, like more traditional big body guys. Whereas Williams is uh, someone more like uh, capable of handling stuff like that. So there's a little bit of argument for Williams, even though I have Kessler higher. But uh, yeah, I really loved what the Wolves did in this draft. Uh, there's a few other guys I forget off the top of my head but I remember just looking at some of the guys that they got and I was pretty uh impressed relatively with uh, who they ended up with yeah they also got Wendell Moore and uh Josh Minot yeah yeah Minot yeah I'm a big uh Minot fan but we'll, we could hold off on that for a little while uh yeah uh Adam uh what's yeah, I'm looking at the board here trying to think of how I want to kind of frame the next question here because I see a lot of different guys that are, are around this area, different types of, of skill players, but we get onto a run here in the later part of tier three with more guard based guys, you know, Kennedy Chandler, Blake Wesley, Trevor Keels, Ty, Ty Washington, Dalen Perry. 
I'd even throw Christian Brown in there a little bit. Um, is this more about prioritizing size shooting athleticism a little bit earlier in a tier or more about uh, just how the, you know, the, the dice fell in this year's class? Like, are you somebody who thinks that smaller guys are getting phased out a little bit more in the league or have a, a larger, uh, more obstacles in their path to reach their ceiling? Or is this more just the, the way this, this draft class fell? Yeah, no, I do think that's kind of true. And I think in this class in particular, there's not a lot of them, but uh, I think sometimes people could kind of overstate that or like, or overemphasize it at least on their boards. And like somebody like Kennedy Chandler, I think uh, was kind of undervalued in this class because people kind of care too much about the size. I think a classic example, we could look at somebody like Jalen Brunson who, uh, you know, fell to the second round uh, because people questioned uh, kind of the size and obviously that's worked out quite well. And there's a few examples like that in the recent years where guys kind of drop uh, below uh, what they may have been taking if they were just like an inch or two taller, you know, or had a little bit more length or whatever. And, uh, you know, end up outplaying their draft, you know, Fred Van Reed is a classic one, but yeah, uh, I'm, I don't have like a list off the top of my head, but um, yeah. Um, so I think that's kind of the case for Chandler, but uh, I didn't necessarily like uh, uh, think of it that way where like, you know, oh, I'm going to try to put these guys there and these guys there. But uh, I did feel like uh, kind of the top half of that tier were the guys that I uh, already kind of had in that range that I thought were uh, that level of talent. And maybe some of the guys like uh, Keels or even uh, Ty Ty and uh, Baldwin and Brown, uh, uh, those guys that I thought were uh, really good fits with the teams that they ended up with. And uh, uh, I kind of threw them at the end of that tier because of uh, where they ended up at. And uh, I mean, I like them to some degree, of course, but uh, yeah, I think, I think the fit is important for guys like that. Um, so yeah, for, for me, uh... I, I definitely think the NBA is drifting a little away from small guys and you're seeing it, you know, in this playoffs, you know, Toronto had a pretty good run versus Philly for two and a half games when Fred Van Vliet got injured where they were playing like five wings at once. It looks like the Clippers are going to experiment with that a little bit. You know, the Celtics just started one big guard and Marcus Smart. So, you know, I, I do think the league is kind of gravitating towards a situation where, you know, you have to either be, you know, big enough to switch on to multiple guys or you have to be, you know, really good offensively. And that was one of the things that I didn't like about this class as a whole is it seemed like, you know, there's just a lot of guys in the class who are, uh, you know, not really running an offense. They're just kind of get, being there to space, space the floor and maybe add a little bit of offense. But uh, they're still 6'4", 6'5", 6'6". You know, I think Sharp's one of them. I think AJ Griffin's one of them, Ochai Abaji, um, Malachi Branham, uh, you know, even Jaden Ivey to an extent. So, uh, yeah, that's, I think that's kind of, um, and I think you're kind of seeing the NBA do that and having guys like Dale and Terry go 18th and Jake LaRavia 19th. And they're just saying, you know, hey, these guys normally, you know, you can get them in the late 20s or even in the 30s, but now they're going to go in mid round one because. They want the big dudes who can switch on to multiple guys. Yeah, that's interesting stuff. Uh, Adam, what did you think of this draft as a whole, like in the broad? In terms of the talent of the draft class? Just the draft class and the talent, like a broad, like macro thoughts of the draft. Yeah, I, I thought the top three or four was 
pretty solid. Uh, you know, not the the top of the top guys like last year. I thought the the you know, elite of the elite came out in, in last year's draft class and, and even a little bit next year. Uh, but I think the top four are, are pretty much on par with an, an average class that you would find where the talent really started to fall off for me was right after the lottery. You know, I'd mentioned uh, I had AJ Griffin, I had Jalen Williams out of Santa Clara and I had Usman Jang as three of the, like, this is the area where if I'm making a high profile swing on a guy that I'm still not very sure on, that's the spot that I would do it in this class. I think in most years that gets pushed back a little bit farther into the twenties. So the lack of depth of real first round guys caught up to me. Like I try to go by, you know, first round grades and look at them from year to year and compare the prospects that we have now to years past. And I only came up with 22 first round grades this year. So I, I thought there's a ton of uncertainty from like 23 to 55 on my board but I felt very secure in knowing like there are 22 guys that I actually do really like. Yeah. I actually so, kind of want to go ahead, Dean. Go ahead. So, so, so do you guys think that there, there are, there are any guys in round two who you think uh, could, could prove to be steals or is this just going to be a round two where it's just like, there's like one okay rotation player and then everyone else busts. I think it's a solid round two. Like the guys that are like, like that I have ranked, I think are solid. But after that, it really quickly like falls off into like guys that are not really close to the NBA. Like when you get like the 60th best prospect in this draft, like it's really hard to see them be successful in the NBA, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. Here we go on, Adam. Yeah. I, I mean, I think. There's solid, always solid value to find in the second round. I think my point there was from picks like 23 to 30, you're not getting the same type of value that you would get as in most years. I really like the swing that the Dallas Mavericks made on Jaden Hardy, just in terms of talent and upside alone. Like there, again, there becomes a point when a guy like that is worth it because if you miss on Jaden Hardy at what, 36, 37, that's not going to do anything to your franchise long-term. That doesn't cripple you in any ways. But if you hit on a guy like him, that's legitimate lottery level type of upside and talent. So uh, those types of swings, uh, you know, I tend to appreciate a little bit more. I do think that one of the more solid and, and under the radar guys there was actually uh, Isaiah Mobley going to Cleveland. I, I think that his game is really, really modern and fits well with what Cleveland was, was trying to do let alone the fact he gets to play with his brother, right? Like, I think that factors into this a little bit. Um, but but I did like both of those selections. What did you think yeah, of Doug Baji pick, uh, Adam? Say again? What did you think of Doug Baji pick? Um, you know, fine. I, again, it's – I keep going back to risk. That's the big word that I – like, he's probably the least risky guy that you would find in that middle of the first round range. Um I had him more in the twenties, like didn't think that he was somebody that I would love to go after in the middle part of the first round. But when you look at the way the draft has trended over the last few years, like just shooting specialists who, you know, can come in and be a, a really reliable 37 to 42% from three year after year, they're going in the later parts of the lottery. That's where Corey Kispert is going. Cam Johnson is going like that's where you're finding value from role players right now. Uh, so I get it. I think Cleveland desperately needed a little bit more floor spacing. Um, yeah, no, no issue with the pick. Yeah. So, so here's, here's my question with the is how sure can you be that he is going to be a 37 to 42% three point shooter? 
because yeah, he made 40% over 40% on high volume as a senior, but he still only made 74% free throw. He still shot 71% free throw for his career at Kansas. And just without having that free throw percentage to really back it up and be like, yeah, this guy's a great shooter. What happens if he comes into an NBA team and he shoots 33% from three? And then, you know, does he do enough to really be like stick around in rotations if he is just a 33% shooter? So I, I, I agree that if he doesn't shoot, you know, 35, 36% or above, he's going to struggle to fit in, into a rotation. Um, and the, the statistical background isn't there to suggest that he's going to have that same shooting impact of a guy like a Cam Johnson or a Corey Kispert, no doubt about it. Um, I try to rely on the film a little bit more that tells me how legitimate the shooting is, as opposed to just the numbers. Is the stroke consistent every single time? Has there been some sort of a tweak that the player has made from when their shooting numbers were low to where they are right now. That leads me to believe that it's sustainable. Um, yeah. I, I think Igbaji's form is, is pretty, pretty solid. Now I also don't think he's a movement shooter. Like I would not run him off of staggers and screens and, and try to have him be a gravity creator in that regard. I think that his best best shot at making in the NBA is standing in the corners and knocking down threes, not being like a body healed or somebody else that's used in complicated movement actions. Um, again, lowers the ceiling on him for me, but if, if you're Cleveland and again, just trying to hit a single, trying to get a little bit of floor spacing and you know, you're not going to ask him to do too much. I would feel pretty comfortable that he's going to be okay in that role. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I agree with you that like even his mechanics, like uh, from like a spot up uh, uh, angle, like he definitely improved uh, over the course of his career in Kansas senior, he got a better volume on uh, those spot up shots and maybe some like one dribble pull up type of stuff. But uh, yeah, like generally, I don't think he's going to get away because it's not just the percentage, but you have to have volume to, to a degree. And that's kind of uh, another question with him. Like, well, you know, maybe he'll take like two attempts a game or something at 35%. But higher volume than that, I kind of worry about. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm not a huge on the budget, but uh, yeah, uh, we'll see. Maybe he'll be an all right uh, 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 fit. Yeah, for the them. thing, the other thing for me with Cleveland is they just don't draft any wings ever, and you have all these other teams with like you know five wing lineups, and they're like refuse to have a single one. Like even even Okor is a little bit strong, small to be a wing, even if you like him. So that that was another thing. You know, you had Tari Eason on the board. You had Jake LaRavia, you had Dale and Terry. There was a huge run of wings coming, and they took Baji, who's like, yeah, he can be fine. He can make the threes in the corner and defend ones and twos uh, if he needs to switch. But, yeah, I think I think they should have gone wing heavy, um, at least in the first two picks. I did like – I do agree with Adam that I liked uh, them taking Mobley in, uh, in the late second just because, you know, I like the whole Mobley family. It's a smart family of players. Yeah, I think the two things kind of uh, to bring it to different, like to change the subject a little bit, but uh, the two things that uh, kind of, uh, I guess I learned or like kind of different for me this draft is, uh, first of all, I didn't really get a chance to really like uh, focus on the combine. I didn't watch almost at all the, the scrimmages, which I usually like, I know a lot of people don't like those, but I actually place like not huge value uh, uh, on them, but you know, like they're like, you know, uh, 
say two tournament games per each scrimmage. That's about how much value I place on each one. Like, you know, there's, it's still a lot of talented college uh, stars and the uh, top prospects playing against one another. And, uh, you know, the context may be kind of disorganized, but in a way that's also good for evaluation because uh, you kind of see guys outside of any like system or like coaching uh, kind of uh, cuffs or uh, leashes and kind of just see the pure talent there. So that part and the, like even like evaluating the me measurements and athletic testing, I really didn't get a chance to do that a lot. And I think that's probably why I'm lower in somebody like Jalen Williams. And then uh, the other thing that I really kind of picked up this draft is kind of a more philosophical kind of thing is uh, in the past, I used to always like uh, criticize people uh, for, uh, you know, the NBA for uh, kind of having these connections to certain uh, teams and like coaches kind of having this level of quote-unquote nepotism not necessarily being family but just through relationships and stuff like that depending on that to make uh, decisions but really having uh you know made friends with some people in the league or some of my friends have been hired I kind of start to understand that more uh, myself like for example I really have a lot of confidence in the Rockets being able to develop guys and the guys they take uh being able to uh you know or possibly outweigh expectations because I know like a lot of the guys there and I trust the guys there. And, uh, you know, uh, and the same thing with us, uh, you know, somebody like Jake Laravia, uh, you know, I, I'm close with his uh, agent and uh, I know some of the guys that work for that agency. And I, so I really trust uh, that, that agency to be making good decisions for his career and, uh, you know, really helping his career develop. So it's kind of uh, uh, opened up my eyes to kind of why uh, like uh, you could be making uh, possibly good decisions uh, through uh, the people you know and through networking and relationships and stuff like that could help inform your decision making even in a positive way potentially. Yeah, so I actually agree with your point about the combine scrimmages because I normally didn't pay much attention, but then, you know, last year I thought Quentin Grimes and Bones Highland looked like the two best players in the scrimmages. And now they're looking like two of two of the better picks in late round one. And uh, yeah, I would agree. I watched the scrimmages this year. Uh, I thought I thought Jalen Williams looked pretty good. And I remember thinking like, oh, wow, I might have been sleeping on this guy. Maybe he should go somewhere in the 20s. But I didn't think this guy's a lottery pick. I still think it, it's kind of risky to take, you know, a mid-major like that who kind of comes out of nowhere. And then, you know, he knows how to gain the vertical junk to get the highest max vertical. And then he has he has a pretty good um, scrimmages. I feel like just just taking that lotto just is just riding that hype train just a little too aggressively. Dean, were there any other major philosophical takeaways or things looking back at this draft class that you feel like you've learned from or, or, or really gained? I don't know. I just feel like every year I just feel like the draft is, is, is so hard because I feel like every year I feel like I have all these great ideas coming in. And then afterwards I start talking to people. It's like, well, why did you like this guy? Why did I, why did you like that guy? And they'll always have, you know, a different angle that I never, I never even considered. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, 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 for instance, like Peyton Watson this year, I wasn't that high in Peyton Watson just because, you know, he couldn't make a shot for the life of him at, at UCLA. But then um, I couldn't think of any example to compare him to, but then somebody kind of pointed out that he's similar to Herb Jones. And I was like, oh, wow, this actually is a pretty good comp. Maybe he could be good. So uh, yeah, I just, my main philosophical takeaway is that the draft is hard and there's just so many angles to look at for every prospect. It's hard to, it's hard to really get everything right. Yeah, absolutely. Adam, what about you? Um, you know, I, I think I've started to come around to the roster construction, leaving 
away some of the smaller point guards a little bit from this league. Like I, I think Mike, I agree with you on Kennedy Chandler from a skills standpoint. He's a really, really good player in this class relative to everybody else. But I think that that his his positional fit and what he needs in order to succeed isn't worth all of the effort that goes into putting him in that position. Uh, you know, I've been burned by guys who are smaller point guards over the last couple of cycles, not in terms of the fact that they might not have NBA skill, but again, you have to commit to a certain style of play and how you blanket those guys in order to bring that out of them. Like the threshold that they have to reach is incredibly, incredibly high. And, and I didn't think that there were a lot of smaller guards in this class that got close to warranting that. Uh, I think what goes hand in hand with that, I tried to put a little bit more of an emphasis this year on the combinations of playmaking size and shooting ability that if guys really check all of those three boxes uh, over the last couple of years, when I've looked at the draft or the players that I've gotten wrong and others have might maybe gotten a little bit more correct uh, that tends to be the the overlapping skill is that they're bigger guys, you know, whether they're wings, front court players, whatever, they have good positional size, they shoot the ball, and they're really high field, quick decision makers. So, you know, one guy who I tried to hang on to a little bit higher on my board and, and gave a early to mid second round grade on was Jordan Hall out of St. Joe's, because I think that he's going to be a really fascinating type of of archetype to come out throughout this entire process of, you know, he has his shortcomings for sure. Doesn't put a ton of pressure on the rim, not an elite defender by any means, but do those three boxes being checked, give him enough to really carry him to the NBA level and, and to kind of outperform where he's, he's kind of seen by consensus. So uh, a lot more about position and combinations of size and skill than anything else that I've really looked at before. I tried to look at each guy individually and then slot him uh, based on just how much I like his game. And I'm trending more in the direction of uh, positional value and size. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that one. Uh, I definitely think that you're seeing, you know, smaller, less and less smaller guards. And, you know, the, like I said, the Celtics made the, the, the finals with just one big guard. And I'm, I'm going to wonder if you're going to start seeing more teams try to do one big guard and three wings and one big lineups more often, um, you know, which could make it tougher for, for a guy like Kennedy Chandler, especially since a lot of his values on defense, but he doesn't really fit switch fit. He doesn't really fit in the switching defense. So, yeah, I mean, for, I can, for Hall, I can see how, I, I don't know if he's good, but I can see how, if he is good, well, you're, you're getting a six, eight guy who can handle and pass. That's pretty nice. Right especially for undrafted free agent pile. Um, you know, so for me, one of the guys I like was Trevor Keels, because to me that that's like a big guard who can, you know, run the offense. Um, but also, you know, I, I think he can kind of be like, um, maybe like a, like a Jalen Brunson or a Monty Morris, but bigger. And because he's bigger, he's going to be hard, tougher to hunt on defense and stuff. So I'm kind of thinking that, you know, guys like, but like the, the, the kind of one big point guard, even if he's not like a true point guard, who's going to score like 20 points and nine assists, maybe it'll be like 14 points and five assists. I think that that could be the future. That's interesting. You must be high on the kills this way, like, uh, passing and uh, ball handling, uh, stuff like that. Because I would think of him maybe like more like bigger Emmanuel quickly or somebody. I guess Brunson could kind of, but even Brunson, I feel is like so much quicker than kills. He's smaller though. You're right. Kills is taller. 
Yeah, well, well Kiels is really crafty, and I think he, he's pretty coordinated. He's pretty good at finding the seams to the rim, and he, he doesn't look that athletic or that shifty doing it, but he just gets there. And then once he gets there, he finishes. And a little bit of it is bully ball that may not translate all the way, but I think there's definitely some some interesting creation potential with Kiels, and I think if he wasn't on such a loaded deep Duke team, he could have shown a lot more uh, creation ability, especially if he stayed for a sophomore, and that was really going to be his team. You definitely, you sold me on kills throughout the season. Uh, I kind of moved them up on him, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I kind of didn't think of him like as a, like a playmaker as much as more of like a maybe three and D. I could see him being like a quote unquote point guard, like the smallest guy on the team, but it would have to be alongside somebody else doing the creation and he'd still play more off ball and offense in my opinion at least that's what how i would picture it but yeah well, well um, yeah that's kind of how i look at it kind of kind of like a monty morris a guy who like pitches another creation but is it like being like the offensive hop yeah 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 just i i think of morris is a better playmaker but you're right in the nba he doesn't necessarily do a lot of that he's a lot plays a lot more off ball like with Jokic and all that i mean Jokic and all the other guys but yeah um is there any teams that you guys uh, deemed, did you think any teams did particularly well or particularly poorly besides maybe some of the ones we already mentioned? Uh, yeah, I mean, I thought there were a lot more teams that I thought did well than poorly. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't really like uh, Oklahoma City or Portland, which which we touched on. Um, I think I think the Rockets and Magic are big winners just because they got stars. I thought the Knicks had you know a surprisingly good draft night because I loved the Keels pick and, and I loved their trade. Um, and uh, yeah, I would say I would say those those are the biggest winners, and then you know a lot of other teams did well. I thought you know I like the Raptors getting Coloco at thirty three. Um, you know I think the Grizzlies and the Nuggets had a decent night. You know the Pistons had a good night, uh, even though I'm not that high on, on Ivy. That the Duran trade was good. So I mean I think I think a lot of teams drafted well um, outside of uh, Portland and Oklahoma City. Adam. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's, you know, for me, Houston and Detroit stood out as the biggest winners. I thought they got great value, great star players. I, I thought Houston had a great night top to bottom. Um, you know, I, I, um, I have learned that even if I disagree with the, the assessment on a player, to trust the professionals who do things, who have the access to more information. And at the end of the day, like Mike, when we're looking at your board here, a lot of where these guys are slotted today, day after the draft, uh, their ranking changes based on where they end up, right? That the organizational fit and the developmental scheme to be able to get these guys to their best potential really does matter in this process. So two teams that I am increasingly buying into that just get guys better and, and have a, a tendency to, to really do well at this are the San Antonio Spurs and the Memphis Grizzlies. Like both teams, I think, took guys that I would say, not my favorite player there, not my cup of tea, but I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt because I think the way that they evaluate talent, the way that they have, you know, an infrastructure that allows those guys to get better in functional ways to what they do on court, it, it's proven time and time again to be, be fruitful. So uh, I think both of those teams, I'm looking forward to seeing what ends up happening because I think there's a lot that we can learn from their process. Uh, the, the one last team that I, I know I mentioned it real briefly, but I thought Dallas just being able to get really good talent in the later part of the round trade in there, um, they're, they're doing all the right things right now. Hey, Dean, what'd you think of Josh Mino? 
Um, I not I, I didn't really know what to think about him because I looked at his stats for Memphis and I looked at his dimensions and he's young and he can looks like he can guard wings. He looked really interesting to me. The combine scrimmages, he didn't look as good. It looked like his skill level wasn't just there. He was missing some pretty makeable shots and missing them badly, which made me a, a little bit nervous that like, well, maybe he just got lucky making some shots for, for Memphis and just, or maybe his, in a bigger sample, he wouldn't have been that good if he had to play 30 minutes a game instead of 15 minutes a game. Uh, so, so I think he's interesting to be sure, but I have no idea if he's good or not. Yeah, I, I like my, no, I, I think he has a lot of upside, but those are fair criticisms. His offense is very raw. But yeah, just the team I was going to mention to you guys there, and he had mentioned that I thought the well was the Hornets. Uh, of course, Mark Williams, they got a pretty good uh, five that I think will be a good depth pick for them. And then they got my now in the second round. And I believe they might have even got a third guy, even though I'm not certain about that. But yeah. They, they got Wendell Moore and Kessler. And then, yeah, my not. Yeah, yeah. Minnesota ended up with uh, Kessler, Minot, and more. Charlotte, I think, walks away with Mark Williams, Bryce McGowan's, and then whatever they netted as part of that trade with Duran. Oh, my bad, my bad. Then I must have wrote it down wrong here. Then, uh, yeah. Yeah, Charlotte. Charlotte didn't get much for that Duran trade. Well, they basically got the Nuggets pick last year, and then a bunch of like mid-second rounders. Yeah, 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 my bad, my bad. So yeah, then uh, I think I'm mostly like, I think uh, Memphis and Spurs uh, definitely did great. I thought I mentioned the Pacers did pretty good. I thought, uh, not amazing to be honest, but I just like uh, the team already in place. So adding, I think those guys that they did get fit well within the pieces they have. And uh, yeah, you guys said the Rockets, I think uh, Adam pointed out a lot of the teams that I thought did uh, pretty well. Let's see who did poorly besides the Thunder. I don't know. Yeah, you guys are right. There's not a lot of teams that did really uh, like. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the Wizards are kind of winning the award for drafting the most boring lottery pick every year. Yeah, it's not bad, but it's just like, eh, like. I mean, when I walk away from the draft and I don't know the clear direction that the franchise is going in, like it's it's less about a critique of I don't love this guy, so therefore I don't like that pick. It's like I just want clarity to know what they're trying to accomplish over the next two to five years. And like Sacramento and Washington are two teams perennially that I'm like, okay, I, I get why that guy's a decent talent and, and somebody on the board there, but there's so much more reshuffling of deck chairs on the Titanic that has to happen in order for this team to, to get a little bit more competitive. And it just feels like that. It feels like they're, you know, reshuffling deck chairs on the Titanic because they're just going to win 35 to 38 games and miss out on where they need to be until they make that definitive decision to go in a direction and stay that way. Yeah, I agree. And I'm not even sure that they know what they're doing because when right. Roach tweeted that, that Johnny Davis pick, he's like, Washington gets their point guard. It's like, wait, Johnny Davis is the point guard? Did the Wizards GM say we're getting our point guard when they said they're <laughs> going to draft him? Or is that Woj's own opinion? Because he's not a point guard. He's a shooting guard. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. But I think I'm pretty much like, I don't, there's no yeah. point of sitting here and going through every second round, guys. Anything else you guys want to add? No, um, I, I think the – go ahead, Dean. No, I, I don't really have anything you can you can go on. I feel like we, we've gone through a lot of good topics here. Yeah, I, I was going to say for, for me, what I've learned uh, this past year in this draft cycle is to be open to having genuine conversations and getting the opinions of other people. Uh, over the, the past couple of years, I had this real mentality of 
Like in order to make sure that my board isn't impacted by others' opinions, I need to stay away from hearing group think as much as possible. And now I'm learning to embrace that a little bit more that not necessarily Intel, but hearing how other people think, having philosophical discussions like the three of us just had, put me in a better position to actually make informed decisions. So moving forward, that's one thing that I'm going to try to do a lot more of is seek out people whose opinions I trust, who I think think about the why of what it is that, that's going on throughout front offices, throughout their own scouting. Uh, and from there, use that to make more informed decisions, not necessarily just to pair it off what they said. So in, in closing here, I want to thank you guys for, I know this is coming out on, on the box and one podcast here, but thank you guys for allowing me to have this be the forum that we had a conversation like this, but also for bringing forward good philosophical conversation. Cause I think at the end of the day, we learn more from discussing the themes here than we do the individual prospects a lot of the time. And, uh, and I think that that's a real relevant way to really put a bow on this 2022 draft class. Yeah, sounds good. Good to talk to you guys. Thank you for uh, discussing my board with me too. Yeah, I had a good time. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks, guys. Awesome. All right. See you, see you guys later.